a hat. A woolen. Rory's gone back to university. Why are you wearing a hat? Because it's cold in my house. And also because I've been wearing a hat all morning, so my hair will be ridiculous. Oh. Uh, before Steve gets here, yes. let's talk about him. Slag him off. <laughs> the, the... Never liked him. Never liked him. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Can Late you... to the party. He's not brought a bottle. It's... <laughs> what's going on? What's going on? There's something going on. This, this would... is not you. This is not you. Chinch, chinch, not only would I have bought a bottle, I'd have drunk one on my way. And the, the, the more pertinent question is, why is Rory wearing a beanie? Oh, we've had that. We've been, again, you'll have to explain. His house, for some reason, is so cold, he has to wear a hat. It's, very, it, it's got very high ceilings, which makes it very cold. Also, as, for reasons of vanity, Stephen, I've been wearing a hat all morning, therefore... Well, look, you can choose. But, but what Rory, do you want? You, That's you fine. Have, no, what's wrong with sorry, that? Your tousled you hair is a normal look. Give it you a push. Have, Give it a... Yeah, and again... Once more, done. You know, that's Magic. actually all right. Yeah. Well, there you go. Sure you can't have the pod's most magnificent hair and <laughs> yes. hide it. That's you not, are, your that's hair not is the Mufasa of this podcast, so we really do need to, to keep it Hang upright. That, that, that reaches a very tragic end at the end of Act One. I'm not entirely What's happened sure. to my hair? Is he more Simba's hair got great, but it wasn't great from from when he was a, a baby lion, was it? It did improve, oh. but Mufasa's. <laughs> His barnet was tremendous. Do lions have barnets? Yes, they do. They do. They have great mane. You have a great mane. They, they not going to die a horrible death, killed by yeah. your. Is it his brother that kills him? Well, well his it's... brother doesn't save him when given the opportunity. Ah. He, is, he is killed. Well, I suppose he does push him off the edge when given the opportunity to save him. But he is initially injured by um, by the wildebeest migration. But you're not. He you're not talking about, about me being the Mufasa of the podcast. It's just my hair. <laughs> Yes. So the the, the, yeah. the sort of ultimate conclusion of this isn't my death. It's it's baldness. You're never going to go bald unless you're well, growing the hair as a, a, you're realizing it is coming. It's well. I, I think funny. This is a, this is a hot topic of conversation in the Smith in the Smith in the broader Smith family at the moment. As my cousin is worried that who is younger than me, he's a year younger than my brother, uh, he's worried that his hair's going. Is it? And he's now at the stage where he's thinking about his maternal grandfather, which is apparently the link. But I believe that is an old wives' tale. Uh, the, the the problem is that there is li- little to no solace to be had in my very shiny maternal grandfather's head. He went bald at about twelve, and so w- we all. I went through it. Rob went through it. And now Alex going through it. We all go through this bit where we're like, "What about a maternal grandfather?" And it's a bit like, "Oh no, no, no hope that's not true." <laughs> but I had the. Um, I had the same thing in my early 30s. My, my hairline receded, but then like a sort of drought that, that is met by rainfall, it just stopped. So it's, we've been in a, me and my head have been in an, an uneasy truce for, I think, seven years. Whereby as long as it doesn't go any further, it's fine. I'll deal with it. Welcome to Set Piece Menu. <laughs> and that's the story of Smith Family Baldness. Happy New Year from Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends back in lockdown talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, regularly in the New York Times, occasionally on the BBC, sometimes on BT Sport. Stephen Wyeth, always on BT Sport, regularly on the BBC, never in the New York Times. And Annie Hinchcliffe, never in the New York Times, never on the BBC, never on BT Sport. Makes you wonder what he does with all his time that he has. The food is provided by Stephen. Stephen, would you like to uh, reveal uh, what you have? Well, over the last few years, Hugh, you have very kindly filled a significant void in my Christmas life by providing me with a, a relatively large chunk of Christmas cake made by your great aunt. No, just my aunt. She's not just that your old. aunt. No, but she is great because of the Christmas cake that she produces. <laughs> All right, I see. Yeah. Well, I know that that source of oh, um, that that yeah. source was cut off this year. Yeah. So. I wonder. Like look at that! It's like a it's like a fruity iceberg. Katie stepped into the Christmas cake void, and made a Christmas cake for the first time in her life this year, and I thought it was only right, Hugh, that some of it found its way to your doorstep. Is it horrible? Pre-lockdown, um, I have saved it for this moment. So when you guys start talking, which will probably be in about ten minutes' time, I'll have some. Have you got a bucket handy just in case? Because sometimes first attempts can go horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Katie. I'm sure it will be fine. But just in case, first, have you got a bucket? Given what's left, I think it's been fairly successful thus far. Chinch, it was a triumph. Yeah, but you have oh, to say that. No, no, she's standing out of shot with a rolling pin. <laughs> I don't. She's she's busy. She's busy homeschooling the kids. She would not hear it if I was to dismiss her Christmas cake, but I will not because it was... Why are you whispering? <laughs> <laughs> Who knew that homeschooling was just an opportunity to badmouth your other half? Um, Steve, the... Steve what, what room are you in? 
I'm, I'm in our partially decorated front room at the moment. Turn the camera. Let's see. Let's see what's going on. Let's see what the business is. A panic room, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, you're in. You're, that is your front room. There's the Christmas tree. Bad luck to still have Christmas it up. Christmas tree still up? No, yeah, no, 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 no. It's all right down. Today. It's got to come down. It's got to come down today, and it will come down today. Yes, the, the wife with with a tight deadline. I'm sure he'll meet that. Yeah. <laughs> no, do, do you know what? We didn't put ours up until the 20th or the 21st. That does not so, it's, so it's going down so on it's the 21st staying, of it's January. It's staying up for every single day of the 12 days of Christmas. Uh, the football is changed. Do you know what we're talking about today? Oh, boy, do I know what we're talking about. So I turned over a new leaf, 2021. I have got my finger on the pulse. What are we talking about? <laughs> we are being particularly meta. We're asking, why is everyone talking about Leeds? With the answer inevitably being a significant addition to the conversation about Leeds. You can get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and please subscribe to our YouTube channel. John Wood is back with further news of his secondhand sponsorship offer of Ice Supplies from two weeks ago. Dear Socrates, Diogenes, Epicurus and Epictetus. Epictetus. Epictetus, the, the, the very best of all Tetuses. Uh, bad news on my cousin's sponsorship idea for SPM, says John. Seems that God is not someone you can muscle out of the ice business. Hell, Michigan has frozen over. Uh, my cousin is, however, still determined to be a sponsor of his favourite pod. So he is moving from hell and he hopes his new business idea will take off. It's called Chiropteras Out of Hell. Do we get the joke? I needed to Google it. I know. What's the first word of the joke? Chiroptera. 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 Do you know what that is? C-H-I-R-O-P-T-E-R-A. Yes. And your Latin slash Greek background will surely lead you to understanding that that is in fact a... Type of sofa. <laughs> <laughs> what, what other things also go out of hell? Oh, a bat. A bat. Yes. So it's a hilarious joke that completely landed, John. Thanks. Um, so we are back down to a Jordanian hardware store only uh, in our territorial marketing strategy. Uh, all sponsorship offers, as long as you are either a non-Middle Eastern hardware store or indeed a Jordanian non-hardware store, to setpiecemenu at gmail.com, there are plenty of opportunities to tick one of those two boxes. Next, to a further update on my mistaken Robbies um, from the Robbie for whom I mistook the other Robbie. This is... Robbie Harms, dear Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, and Rudolph. And Rudolph, why was Rudolph German? And Rudolph, these recent episodes have been characteristically fantastic. I'm a few behind, so I don't know if this has yet been corrected, but Hugh has introduced Robbie Wells as the bear correspondent from North Carolina in recent weeks. I wish I could take credit for Robbie Wells' funny and intelligent writing, but alas, I am Robbie Harms, whose only email contributions have had nothing to do with the sport you all cover, but rather bears. Speaking of, a short story. A couple of months ago, a friend's dog sitter went out to retrieve something from her car. Upon opening the door, she found herself face to face with a bear sitting in the passenger's seat. The bear had apparently opened her car door, got in and then shut it, rummaging for food. Both parties were predictably surprised and the bear would not leave until a neighbour came to scare it off. The lesson here, I guess, is to always lock your car doors because you never know when a large animal might climb in. Thanks again and have a happy new year. All the best from Robbie Harms. Where was the bear going? Does he think it was an Uber? <laughs> oh, you could see the cogs as the story was unfolding. I could watch it, the cogs were turning. That's a good one. Belter. Strictly speaking, in lockdown, that bear should have been wearing a mask and in the back seat, not in the passenger seat. Um, Cody Schultz was partly responsible for our nostalgia two-parter over Christmas New Year, so he gets another go. Uh, dear Cheech, Chong, Seth Rogen and Snoop Dogg. The above names were chosen because I finally decided to listen to you guys at normal speed for the first time after hearing to my great surprise that you had chosen my email as the topic for this week's podcast. After only hearing you all at two times speed for months, switching to one time speed made you all sound like you were speaking particularly carefully, as if you were under the influence of something. Regardless, I was extremely pleased to hear that I was able to do the hard work for you guys for not one, but two podcasts. No need to thank me, of course. I was so happy, in fact, that my first thought was to jump up and tell the nearest person that I had made it big time. My 15 minutes of fame. But then I quickly remembered that my wife and two children, four and one years old, couldn't give two Sonettis about it. Also, I am 28, not 18 or 19, as Hugh so gallantly guessed. But anyways, I wanted to thank you for taking up my request and giving it a great debate, as always, and for reminding me to never reduce the podcast play speed ever again. Hope you all had fantastic Christmas or other holiday that you may celebrate and have great New Year's as well. Very respectfully, Cody Schultz. P.S., Nostalgicizing, or some other spelling, he says, he uses a Z, he's American, is in fact not a word. P.P.S. If you did see me in person, you probably would have guessed that I was 18 or 19, so it was a decent guess. Uh, that is from Cody. It really is a word. I, I just cannot stress this enough. <laughs> Hang on. 
Googling, googling, googling. googling. I'm going to put it into thesaurus. You, you Google whilst I read this from Adam Taylor. And once Adam's finished, we'll hear from Rory on that subject. Adam Taylor's got in touch to respond to the nostalgia episodes as well. Hi, all. Thank you again for being a podcast companion upon weekly runs, cycles, and shops to Sainsbury's. Following this year's festive doubleheader, I do think some of the points you discussed on nostalgia do pick up on the email I sent to you earlier in the year, as well as earlier contributions on Maradona. It begs the question, would most current five-a-side amateurs think they could do a job in an earlier period professionally? Would Chinch be a Ballon d'Or contender if he played in an era up against Sir Stanley Matthews? Happy New Year to you all and your families. All the best from Adam. This then from Adam is a novel and not at all passive aggressive way of forcing me into resurrecting a previously passed over email some months after it was originally sent. So here it is, because uh, as Adam said in his follow-up email, it is of current relevance. Hi team, Long-time listener, but have yet to have an email shout-out. Wow, he was he was sore about it even then. Nevertheless, always enjoy listening to the podcast. A piece in The Times recently by cricket writer and former England cricket captain Michael Atherton took my interest. Yes, Rory, this is about cricket. Donald Bradman, like cricket. the Australian batsman, ended his test career with a batting average just shy of 100. Atherton was writing in response to a poll that placed Bradman ahead of Sir Vivian Richards, the West Indian great who dominated his side and, in turn, the world for 15 years. Atherton was of the belief that Richards was the more complete player. Bradman, who played in the 1930s and 40s compared to Richards in the 80s, competed at a time when perhaps there was less scrutiny, technology, a different type of journalism and less competition. Indeed, the time when England controversially targeted Bradman in the Bodyline series in the 30s and found a way to get him out subsequently, it was deemed as unsporting at the time. Atherton's argument was that Sevier was a more complete player given the era and the advancement of technology and tactics. Bradman is obviously good, but it was a much gentler game and a much gentler time. History is kind to both, but doesn't consider that part. Taking this approach to football, given that it started in 1992, are we right to look at players of different eras and think that they probably wouldn't meet today's standards? Was Pelé any good? Were the England 66 team a good team? All the best. Adam from London. We'll leave all those questions rhetorical for now as we can just refer uh, people to the previous two episodes for our thoughts on that. But, um, but we, we, we probably should address the fact that I, I don't think it's entirely fair to describe the 1930s and 40s as a gentle time. <laughs> a gentler time. The, the one question that I would like addressed is, would Chinch be a Ballon d'Or contender if he played in an era up against Sir Stanley Matthews? Um, are you asking me that question? Clearly not. I, this is, we should do a podcast on players that don't fit any era of football. <laughs> I, I think I would comfortably be top of that list. I'm not sure what, what style of football really suits me best. I, I, I'm not sure. Even I'm not sure about where I would fit in. I think in all seriousness, if Chinch had played, if Chinch with his talent had played in the 1950s, he would have been recognised as one of the finest of his generation. And the shorts would have fitted a bit better as well. The shorts would have been more, more to your... So I'd yeah. have looked, my, my body shape, my pear shape would probably fitted better in the 50s. Uh, well, I could have probably have run past a lot of people because I'd have been fitter, wouldn't I? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure. I don't think my technical ability would would stump Sir of... Stanley Matthews. I'm not sure he'd be like, whoa, what this guy's so great. I'm never going to dance past him. But... Yes, you are, Stanley. Yes, Chinch. you are. Bear in mind, what was it as a fullback that made your life difficult? Wingers. Winners. And the ball. What, what made winners tricky was oh. that you didn't, you didn't know what they were going to do. They might, they might beat you on the inside, they might beat you on the outside, they might cut inside, they might pass it. Stanley Matthews was only allowed to cross. You knew what, and this isn't to kind of take his name in, in vain or anything, but Stanley Is Matthews... He a dribble, a dribble and a cross, man? Did the same thing. Every winner was. Every, the job was get past the fullback, cross the ball. That was all they ever did. So you you would have, if you'd been sort of back to the future and taken, you know, we to the 1950s. We should write a script for that. Let's take a modern footballer, take within, him back to the 1950s and play against Sir Stanley Matthews. Within about 10 minutes, that'd be. you'd have worked out that, that Matthews was just trying to do the same thing every single time. And you yeah, would but have, he'd still succeed, wouldn't he? That's my problem. He would, I know he what would, he's going to do. It doesn't matter what he's going to do. He's one-dimensional, clearly. But he's still very good at that. He would succeed sometimes, and I think all the but, time. But I think you would not have found him as perplexing as his contemporaries did. If we took Chinch back to the fifties, rather than him regressing backwards from being a left winger to a, a left back, his skills surely would—he'd found himself edging further up the field because running and crossing is Chinch's thing. Is yeah. it? Why didn't anybody tell me that? I could have really honed that skill. Oh, why have I learned that when I'm 51? Do you think if you'd, you'd have played as a, I was 21? Do you think if you'd have, you'd have played as a midfielder, would you have been as good as Ian Wong? I played in midfield. 
horrible. You have to appreciate mm-hmm. what's going on around you. I play at the back. Everything's in front of you. Brilliant. Playing midfield. Whoa, hang on a minute. There's people both sides of me and front and back. Don't like this at all. I feel like surrounded. Chinch could have been Sean Deitch's assistant now. You could have gone to the Grand Canyon oh. with Sean Deitch. <laughs> yeah, and appreciated its magnificence <laughs> for two it, it, seconds. He would have definitely thrown me in. That sounds like you might have been nostalgicising about that. Have you? Uh, By the way, yeah, it's, it, it's not a word. Yeah. As we, it's, as we no, it's not a word. Determined several months ago. Nostalgize is a word. Nostalgize. <laughs> Nostalgize. It means to to apply a balm to your nostrils. Is it a Z oh. or a C? Nost- uh, th- I think well, be a Z in American and presumably an S in English. Oh, an S, S, an S. So it would be nostalgizing. Excellent. I have been making an idiot of myself. <laughs> And yet, you know, doubling down on every opportunity when given the, the, the fact that it wasn't, in fact, a word. Put me in charge of the Tory party. Um, and finally, um, from Henry Wood, whose email sets a delightful stand for 2021 that we expect all of you uh, to meet hereafter. I say email, it's more of a thesis, but you'll enjoy it. Dear Tony, Silvio, Paulie and Artie. I started listening to Set Piece Many back in January of Sopranos. 2020. Following it, yes, yeah, the Sopranos, by the way. And, and Artie isn't, isn't the, the best of those, Chinch, so deliberately I fly. Well, is, this the thing, is it from Hugh and I'm at the bottom? Is that how yes. this system works? Is that well, no, no, all, so I'm always going to be the imbecile at the bottom. That's that, I am the West Brom, basically. Is that yeah, what but I'm looking at here? Uh, Chinch can't be Artie because Artie was the chef. Oh, yeah, he's very good at cooking, so that's completely wrong. Oh, uh, but the you know the slightly sort of verging on the pathetic. That's that's the part that I think um, Henry might have been referring to. I started listening to Set Piece Many back in January of 2020, following a difficult period of my life, which included, but was not limited to, a redundancy, a breakup, dropping my favourite mug, and becoming one of those people who use Strava. And given that I am not, I have discovered what that is. It is uh, an app for people who enjoy the um, the more physical activity side of life. That sounded like a euphemism. It's, it's, uh, it's running and cycling. It's an app for people who do exercise and like to talk about it. Yes, and measure it and yeah. be competitive about yeah. it. Anyway. It's those people at the gym that set tripods up when they're doing some... some I just don't... What yeah. are you doing what that to for? Film themselves. Yes. And they say, oh. oh, I'm doing it for my own benefit. No, you're not. You're sticking it straight on social media to show... Look at my guns. Aren't they great? As, as Hugh well knows, I use Strava. So this feels like an underhand this dig is- at me. This is a personal assault, Stephen. <laughs> well, Henry didn't, but uh, but still, uh, the, the, the point is made. Um, throughout the last year, continues Henry, and this is a long one, so no more interruptions, please. Thank you. I have indulged in a fastidious process of listening to each episode in order without ever skipping forward. This has allowed me to notice two things. Firstly, the pod has evolved and mutated itself into what I can only describe as the single best bit of football content available anywhere. It couples a subtle and genuine intellectualism with an earnest love for the sport. And from genuine political and sociological discussions to Chinch's impassioned readings of some of the greatest texts of modern literature, I can't help but feel that my weeks would be far, far emptier without you. So thanks. Secondly, and perhaps the crux of this correspondence, I was listening to SPM 207, Can You Have the Genius Without the Flaws, a few weeks ago, uh, while I sorted through the remnants of my university work and stumbled across my magnum opus, no chinch, that isn't a new flavour of chalk ice, uh, which was entitled Surrealism in 1920s French Cinema. The work opened with a quote from André Breton. The simplest surrealist act consists of dashing down into the street, pistol in hand and firing blindly as fast as you can pull the trigger into the crowd. As luck would have it, my brain decided to make the connection between this quote and football, and I felt the urge to write you this email. To me, football is the sport which most closely represents the ideals, motifs, and themes of surrealism, and in particular, the French surrealist movement of the early 20th century. It is my opinion that surrealism is the natural extension of human inquisition, rejecting the accepted societal and artistic traditions of a culture, all in favour of the exploration of the uncanny, the dreamlike, and the true beauty of the subconscious. Through uncontrolled or automatic production, the juxtaposition of incongruous imagery and objects, and the use of the abstract, Surrealist art taps into the beauty of the unspoken, the beauty of what lies within the brain. Football's beauty comes from these same roots. I'm 21, and so never watched Maradona, Hadji, Socrates, Dalglish, et al. in the flesh, yet all my life I've been fascinated by watching each player, completely unique in stature and style, on any compilation, VHS or DVD I could get my hands on. At parties at university, I would hijack the screen and speakers and the dying embers of the festivities to put on Georgie Hadji, Regale Din Carpati, goals and skills, and then argue with my best friend, Northern Irish, I must add, as to why he was better than best. But what do these players have in common? 
Their unique style was a rejection of the traditional and prescriptive way of football, and instead an esoteric glimpse into the psyche of the man, ball at his feet, making rapid subconscious decisions to turn, to shift one way or the other, to explore the different paths to success. This is true artistic expression. Not only that, but the majority of great players do this in an uncontrolled or automatic manner. I just did what I did when I was younger, using all those skills I learned when I was a kid, said Paul Gascoigne when asked why he played the way that he did. A demonstration of his lack of conscious decision and instead the just the freehand automatic production of his game. The most beautiful players to watch and the most powerful surrealist artists share this innate ability to capture the innermost subconscious and instinctive thoughts and express them. I think the reason that people can harbour a strong dislike of the styles of Big Sam, Sean Dyche, Tony Pulis et al is rooted in their perceived lack of exploration and freedom. Their football sticks to the prescribed and traditional norms, so much so that it has become something of a joke to talk about 4-4-2 and Twitter's so-called Brexit football jibe only reinforces the feeling that English football has a specific and deeply entrenched, almost ideological style. But when was Allardyce at his most palatable? When his Bolton team, strict and well-drilled, had the maverick J.J. Okocha harnessing his immense ability to act freely, accentuated by the juxtaposition of incongruous styles of play, entertaining the crowd. Put Messi in the clarited blue of Burnley, and the wonder of his game would almost certainly appear more distinct than if he donned the sky blue of Manchester City. In the same way, surrealist art is at its most brilliant when it forcefully juxtaposes itself against reality. If, as Breton said, the simplest surrealist act consists of dashing down into the street, pistol in hand and firing blindly as fast as you can pull the trigger into the crowd, then football is the pistol. And Maradona, Cruyff, Hadji, Suarez, maybe even Chinch, play the gunman. The most sublime feeling is to be awestruck. With art, I am at my most impacted when I see French surrealist art of the 1920s, because to me it captures those glimpses of internal beauty, which can only be captured through the reflection of the subconscious. With football, I can still tell you the exact seat I was in for every single Luis Suarez nutmeg I ever saw. I can tell you exactly where I was the first time I saw the Diego Maradona Live is Life warm-up video. Football is perhaps the only sport which allows such individualism and expression within a strict team format. And to me is the sport which most benefits from the wonder of the subconscious, both in beauty and in success. You rarely win without a bit of spontaneous genius. This is of course a reductive view of both football and surrealism, but I think my theory has legs. As always, great work on the pod, do keep it up. If you instead feel that football is actually neoclassicist, go fuck yourselves. All the best uh, from <laughs> Correspondence of any kind, but particularly that kind of kind, to stepiecemenu at gmail.com. I know it's long, and I apologize for the attention span that I needed you all to have, but that is, I think, excellent. It was a very familiar, familiar theme. I remember Andy Booth and myself sitting down at uh, Huddersfield Gentlemen's Club and discussing how you know the, the great footballs, the, the true mavericks within the game, really express that French surrealism within football. And then I, the conversation lasted about 30 seconds. Boothie got hungry and had to go to KFC to have eight twisters. Um, but it, it was something that he nodded. He nodded on a couple of occasions. I think he understood the word French. <laughs> uh, Henry, thank you very much indeed. If you do indeed have a thesis that uh, marries up football with some other cultural aspect of our time, then, or indeed any time, then uh, do let us know. Menu at gmail.com. Now, uh, I think one of the things the four of us and many more besides would have been able to predict at the beginning of the season is the completely foreseeable narratives surrounding Leeds United. They, to borrow a phrase from Henry Wood, uh, include, but are not limited to, Leeds are a breath of fresh air. Leeds are naive. Will Marcelo Bielsa change his philosophy for the challenge of the Premier League? And Bielsa's teams tend to fade in the latter part of the season. The last of which led to a comment from Karen Carney, which provoked an ugly episode that might not have necessarily been expected from Leeds, but given how we talk about tribalism in the game so much on this podcast, expected from someone at some point. It has further saturated the football conversation with the subject of Leeds. So in a move that will both attempt to alleviate, but definitely promulgate, we're asking why? Why is everyone talking about Leeds? We will come on to the um, Karen Carney um, affair in just a moment, but we wanted to start. Rory, you have a sense that everybody is talking about Leeds and you're wondering why it's happening now, or have we always thought that it would happen? Have we, in a sense, always been... Are we always <laughs> talking, talking about, about Leeds? It. Yes, is the answer. There's two things that really leap out at me, but the, and the first I think we can probably deal with relatively quickly, and, and that's the, the comp basically the competition. I don't, for all that this is quite an interesting Premier League season in the sense that it's unpredictable and it's really tight at the top and, and it's felt as though kind of universes have lived and died a thousand times every weekend and there's wall-to-wall football. I think actually there's not much new to say about the normal top six who occupy our thoughts, that, that Man City have been kind of slow burn and, you know, there's been, there's been a kind of 
been occasions when you thought, oh, maybe, you know, maybe the, you know, Guardiola can't rebuild. But there's always been this sense, I think, from from the media and the mediocrity and and fans alike that that it's it's still very early to be saying City of this or City of that. You you would have been a brave person to write City off in November when they were 12th. You wouldn't. There's been this kind of thing, oh, City have been consistently underestimated. But I, I really don't see that they have. I think when they were 14th, people were saying Man City probably don't want to be 14th. I don't think that's, I don't think that's underestimating them. I think that's pointing out they weren't performing as they would, as they would expect. They've been consistently the first or second favourites with bookmakers. Most fans, I think, have said, most journalists have certainly have been saying, you know, they will come good. United have been down, then up, then down, then up, then down. Now they're champions. And that's interesting in itself, except that that's basically been Man United for the last two years. They are they're rising higher than they have previously. But there's, I think there comes a point where it's hard to say anything about anything new about Manchester United's slight unpredictability. Chelsea were good, then bad, then good, then bad. Same. After a while, it's quite hard to say anything new about Chelsea. Arsenal, they've probably had fewer peaks and troughs, but it's been a similar kind of, they fought a similar arc. Spurs, there's a pattern here, down, then up, then up, then down. Currently, Spurs are in the middle. And <laughs> Liverpool have been a bit more consistent over the course of the season. They've had the big down of the Villa game and their form has now tailed off. So it looks like they're having the same thing. It, because no one is running away with anything, because no one is, because no disaster feels like it's permanent, because no one's sacking their manager, because because these themes of these teams have basically been the same for quite a long time, there isn't much else to talk about. And so actually, if you go through the Premier League, the, the most compelling story, as it was probably foreseeable, is Leeds. They are, they are genuinely, and obviously I have a bias here, they are genuinely the most interesting subjects in the Premier League. And I think that is why there is so much focus on them. Because you look at someone like Villa, who've, who've had a better season than Leeds by any, by any, basically any gauge, even though it's not quite a fair comparison because obviously Villa are in their second season in the Premier League. There is a limit to what you can say about Villa beyond they're doing really well. It's, re- it's really hard to have an in-depth conversation about, about Aston Villa because, yeah, Dean Smith's doing a great job. Jack Grealish is a great player. Ollie Watkins has improved them. You know, Esri Thompson's coming through. Tyrone Mins looks good. All, you know, these are, these are not things you can have long conversations about. You can't write kind of polemics about, about Aston Villa. It's just they're having a good season. Whereas Leeds are... There is a debate to be had. They are a talking point. And we, this, our football culture is completely reliant on talking points. We are short of them elsewhere. And therefore, the thing that people, want, people are most tempted to talk about is Leeds. And also to pick up on that, it demonstrates how not just the Premier League, but how elite football operates in a bubble away from the rest of football. Because by all accounts, and Chinch can fill in the gaps here for us, Leeds aren't necessarily... Let me finish Chinch, then fill in the gaps. (laughs) Leeds aren't necessarily doing anything different this season to what they were doing in the Championship to get themselves promoted. Mm-hmm. Yet because they're now doing it in the Premier League, more people are noticing, more people are talking about it. And therefore, suddenly the, the journalism and the conversation that surrounds elite football is focusing its interest in on it. Whereas those who've been watching Leeds ever since Marcelo Bielsa took over would probably shrug their shoulders and say, we, we could have told you about this two years ago. That's the point, isn't it? Isn't it the, the the extra legs that you get on the Leeds talking points is that those talking points are slightly predictable, are narrative driven and, and, and are not necessarily particularly new. And is that not a frustration in asking why is everybody talking about Leeds is because they are talking about talking points that they're not necessarily witnessing the development of. They are just commenting upon something that has been the case for a good amount of time. Yeah, but it is to an extent natural that that their ascension to the Premier League should should lead to a kind of revival of that conversation that the, the, the Premier League isn't the ultimate test because you, you could make the same argument about any of the top four European leagues that you know you need to see if if the principles that Bielsa stands for and all that stuff whether they they could work in in Serie A or La Liga or, or the Bundesliga the I suspect to be honest in the Bundesliga nobody would notice another team that was good going forward and couldn't defend they'd just be like what's the fuss about the I think that that's natural that, that him being in the Premier League is, okay, this is a chance now to kind of assess how valid those principles are, how successful they can be in, in, in the Premier League. That, I think that's okay. I don't think that's particularly Premier League exceptionalism. Um, but, but also I think if there was a, 
if like Chelsea had gone on some sort of massive run whereby they were seven, eight, ten points clear at the top of the Premier League and Timo Werner had scored 15 goals already and there was another really obvious kind of fascinating thing happening rather than everything that we expect to happen is happening and actually it's quite hard to draw big conclusions because everything changes so much and no one's been particularly kind of everyone's been quite compelling but you can't conclude anything I think that there would have been less conversation about Leeds but because it's really hard with any of the the big six and Arsenal a great example of this that it looked like you were on we were on for like a full-on Arsenal crisis and then within a week they are suddenly back in European contention and that was after like two months of Arsenal being being dreadful, basically. I think there is an, an understanding amongst journalists and fans who are not quite off, who are often not quite as different as they're meant to be, or as they're presented as being, that you can't draw from from one round of fixtures, you can't draw massive conclusions. From one run of form, you can't draw massive conclusions. Chelsea are dreadful, are, are awful at the moment. They've lost four in seven, whatever it is. But they they may well, by the end of January, have won three in three and look like the form, you know, a form team again. And that subconsciously, I think, affects, stops people make it, wanting to draw massive conclusions, wanting to say this is the case about this team, which is unusual for the British media and for British fans, and creates a vacuum into which leads, who are the ultimate distillation of that unpredictability, kind of step, step through the door and say, right, you can, you can, all the stuff that's going on all around the league you can just affix it to us and you can talk about it endlessly, partly there's nothing else going on or there's nothing else you want to talk about to, to that level of detail, but also because we present a massive kind of cultural clash that forces lots of people to confront lots of things they hold to be true about football, which is the second element of why Leeds are being talked about so much. And we'll come to that in just a second, but to to try and determine whether these talking points are talking points that have happened outside of this Premier League bubble prior to it, we turn to somebody who watched them in the Championship quite regularly, and that is Andrew George Hinchcliffe. Uh, Chinch, have they changed to any great degree? Now, we'll come on to the the fact about Marcelo Bielsa needs to change because of the Premier League exceptionalism argument and because, well, surely even the great mind of Marcelo Bielsa also doesn't understand the challenge of the Premier League because the Premier League is so good and all that sort of stuff. We'll come to that in a second. But do, are they essentially as they were last year and the year before currently? Um, yeah, I've watched them for two and a bit years. They, the, the players themselves have got fitter and faster and stronger. I think the numbers uh, associated with Leeds have ramped up and have improved over the time that Bielsa has been there. But yet they, they've done this from day one since he arrived and the improvement in the Leeds players. He's not, you know, signed a couple of players recently, but what he did for a pretty average bunch of players is incredible. He did that in the season that they lost to Derby in the playoff semifinals. And again, what annoys me is that people were lazily saying, oh, there we go again, Bielsa, the way that he plays, his team have run out of steam. They didn't run out of steam when they didn't get promoted that season. Their running numbers were, were as strong at the end of the season as they were at the start and in the middle of the season. So there was no tailing off as people presume will happen with Bielsa's team. So that really did annoy me. It was They came up against a good team on a, on a certain day in Derby who got the job done and, they, and they, they didn't win that semi-final. The following season, they, again, were just fitter and stronger than everybody else. The way that they played just blew everybody out of the water. They won the, the, the league by 10 points. Um, so they had got stronger from that first season. Again, they didn't run out of steam. I think Karen Carney was talking about the, the break helped them a little bit because of their style of football. Maybe it did, but they were still going to win the league anyway, whether there was a break in the season or not. They were so strong. And again, everybody knew wherever they played in the team what they were going to do. And I, I think you're right. It's the lack of maybe stories with clubs within the Premier League. It's, it's pretty bland. And then you've got Bielsa and Leeds, who everybody wanted in the Premier League. He's like a can of red paint that's been thrown all over like a really kind of white canvas and everyone suddenly says, oh my God, where has this come from? It, Bielsa's been doing this for so many years. His, his influence on, on the, the big coaches, Guardiola, Pochettino, we know all about that. He's been doing it with Leeds for two and a bit years now and they have got fitter and stronger. I, I've just been impressed with that. They are running harder and faster than they were when he first arrived and that's just the, the evolution and the fitness of the players. I'm amazed he manages to keep them all as fit as they are considering the way that they play. But it is just a... A style of football that maybe we haven't seen from a newly promoted team as well. Normally it's, well, if you finish fourth and bottom, that's what you're going to be happy with and, and defend well, keep teams out, try and nick games like maybe Sheffield United did when they came up. But that's not, he was never ever going to, and he never will change his philosophy of what he's doing. Regardless of scorelines, he'll play the same way. He has done throughout his career. He's done that at Leeds. He's not going to change it. But I do think it is the, the context that you throw Leeds into a Premier League, which 
as you're saying, even if you've got big clubs in there with big-ish stories, you're always going to return to Leeds because it's a newly promoted team. Everybody wanted them in there and their style of play. But it's not, I don't think it's, to me, it's not mind-blowing. If you haven't watched a lot of Leeds or the Championship, this must be kind of, well, where's this come from? It's overnight this. Clearly, it's not for Bielsa and it's not for Leeds either. But if you don't watch a lot of the Championship, you won't know how he's been doing it there for a couple of years. I just want to stress that it's not to say it's not an interesting season. It's a really interesting season. The title race is incredibly close and Sheffield United Park relegation will be really close. And, and you know, it's got everything we want for various reasons that we've just discussed before. But I, I just think that because it's so unpredictable, it makes it very hard to, to have those storylines. And I, I, it's a bit cliched now talking about storylines in football, but the storylines do not follow any particularly logical pattern, which makes it very hard to to distrust them. And if you think about the, the sort of endless need for content, because of so many football podcasts now, it's ridiculous. Everyone's, every, every bunch of idiots got, got their own football podcast. Unless you've been doing it for four years, exactly. I don't think there's any sort of justification for starting. And it, gets, and it gets described as the single best bit of football content available anywhere by a listener, for example. Exactly, for example. So I, I think it's not that it's not interesting. It's not that, that, that it's a boring season or anything like that and there's nothing happening because it isn't. It's, it's more interesting, say, than last season where you had, by this stage, Liverpool's 16 points clear at the top of the table. That was relatively, that was quite dull for everyone except Liverpool fans. But there's very little to actually kind of get your teeth into beyond Villa having, aren't Villa having a good season? Aren't Arsenal struggling? Oh, they're not struggling anymore. Whereas Leeds are, because there's so much cultural stuff around them, it's much more interesting. And the other thing that I was going to say was that um, you could almost say that Bielsa in the Premier League has effectively walked down the stairs and started firing a pistol wildly into the air. <laughs> and, it's the, and it's the most interesting thing that can happen. Uh, you yeah, mean it's not, it's not as if he's been given a gun for the first time. This no. is what he does, isn't this? This he's is how been, he does it. He's been firing his gun inside for ages. <laughs> but now he's dashing down into the street, pistol in hand, and firing blindly as fast as you can pull the trigger into the crowd. Uh, but part of the crowd that's been struck by a, a, a random errant bullet is the team that's bottom of the table. And even they aren't a talking point that you would normally have at this stage of the season over the festive period, we haven't even had the narrative of the Premier League strugglers providing us with some kind of discussion point. Because even though Sheffield United may well have the worst Premier League season ever, there's still not much to get exercised about in that conversation because the club have made it clear that Chris Wilder is is their man. So you, there can't even be a pile on regarding how has it gone so badly off the rails for the team that, by the way, last season were the, were the ones that effectively were providing us with the Leeds narrative, mm. bearing in mind how well they were doing. In fact, at this stage of last season, Sheffield United were two points and five places better off than Leeds are now, doing it in a very different way, of course. But they were, they were the club that were providing the conversation that Leeds are providing us with 12 months on. Although it has to be said that if if it was a team other than Sheffield United, then then that that would have been that kind of historically bad campaign that sort of hove into view would have been a much more kind of what's the word would have been a, a much more sort of attention grabbing element of the season. I think, as Steve says, partly because Sheffield United have made it clear Wilder's going nowhere. Partly because we all know they massively overachieved yet last year anyway, and partly because there is this snobbery that that ultimately, apart from the big six, Leicester, who are probably in the big six, Villa to an extent. But, but Villa, it's really interesting doing like radio and stuff about Villa, is that it all, basically what people want to talk about is Grealish. There's not, you know, people want to say, well, you know, Esri Trons is good and, and isn't Matty Cash having a, good, having a good season. But no one really, no one really grabs attention like Grealish. That it, 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 Villa has been cast as the Jack Grealish story, which isn't actually entirely, it's not untrue, but it's not entirely fair. But apart from those sort of six or seven clubs, there's not a vast amount of of hay to be made and also money to be made in writing about. We've, and we've heard all these stories before yeah. with other clubs, haven't we? Yeah. So it's all we're kind of rehashing what's happened. But, but Leeds are so again fresh and, and new to a lot of people. That's maybe why it's like, you, kind, of, kind of not caught them out, but they've been surprised by it. And you look at like Newcastle. So Newcastle is quite interesting. There's quite a, you know, there's an interesting thing happening at Newcastle because they are so uninteresting, and that that is a. That is a valid and engaging storyline, but it's one that's been going on for ten years, and or maybe longer. And you think, well, actually, I'm sure Newcastle Newcastle fans will be just as exercised by what Mike Ashley's done to Newcastle now as they were five years ago, ten years ago. 
But for the general public who aren't Newcastle fans, you, you can't just keep writing about how Newcastle is a place bereft of spirit and soul and ambition because heard everybody before. knows that. Yeah. It's, it's the, the, that is not, a, as I say, we, we, we have a talking point culture. Newcastle is not a talking point because everyone knows what's going on. Sheffield United is not a talking point because ultimately being relegated for Sheffield United, as Steve says, they, they nicked a lot of games last year. They kind of, they dug in stadium games, won them. And it was amazing what they did. And this year, to be honest, they're not, they're not playing much worse. They're not, they don't even have the worst defence in the division. West, that's West Brom. They, they're not, they don't look like the worst team in any individual game. So, and this is, this is a flip side of the media that maybe doesn't get enough credit. Because Sheffield United don't look terrible, and because everyone recognises that Chris Wilder's done a good job, no one's going for Chris Wilder. And that, that's actually quite responsible. Yeah, but I, I think other clubs could have done what Sheffield United have this season, because that, that, they put the pin emphatically back in the grenade of discussion about whether or not Chris Wilder's job is, is under jeopardy. And I was there just before Christmas when they were beaten, unfortunately, in many ways, beaten by Manchester United 3-2. And you, no one was interested. At that point, they, would, they, were, they just seemed destined to, to be relegated through misfortune as much as misadventure. Yet there was no sense whatsoever of anybody inside the ground from a, from a journalism broadcasting point of view having to get stuck into Chris Wilder. It was, it was all relatively tame on the touchline afterwards in terms of the talking points. And it was more a, a discussion about, oh, were you a bit unlucky today, weren't you? Did one or two decisions go against you? And that, to me, was fascinating that that was driving the narrative of a club that was not just bottom of the table, but emphatically so, at a stage in which, under normal circumstances, everybody would be desperate for a soundbite that would get them the headline on the back pages the following morning. And that, there, is, there is one other slight factor that we should at least address just briefly, and it shouldn't derail the conversation, but the, the absence of fans in grounds does change things, both in terms of the lack of colour in these stories, storylines, the lack of kind of immediacy of problems. So Arsenal, Arsenal's crisis would have been a bigger thing. It was a massive thing anyway. It's not like it was underreported if they'd been being booed off at the Emirates every week. Equally, you know, Chelsea's poor run of form now would have been a bigger thing. Lampard would be under more pressure if he, he is under pressure, but he'd be under more pressure if, if Stamford Bridge was sort of voicing its discontent all the time. Whereas everything feels, and this isn't to say that the season is illegitimate or we should cancel it immediately, but everything feels vaguely like laboratorial without, without fans in the stadiums. I think it's not that the games aren't entertaining or the games aren't valid or the whole thing is meaningless. That those things aren't true. I think they're, they're easy tropes to reach for, for people who, who want to criticise because of football's intense self-loathing streak. But they do all feel, everything feels a bit like an experiment. And I think that has changed the nature of the way a lot of those storylines are covered. So it's easy for Sheffield United to come out and say, Chris Wilder's completely safe because there's not 30,000 in Bramall Lane suggesting that maybe that shouldn't be the case. It's almost like the, the season is sterilised or vaccinated, if you like, from... Oh, nice. Uh, well the, done. The Topical. But I, I, want, I want to bring back one of the to, to many frustrating storylines that is kind of brought up, even though you expect it to be brought up as if it's a new question and you know the answer to the question. So why'd you bring it up in the first place? Which is this whole idea, which was also something that we heard with Pep Guardiola at the beginning of his time in the Premier League, where... It was, I don't know where the loyalty lies in asking this question, but if you are saying to somebody like Pep Guardiola and now Marcelo Bielsa, who's sitting, what, in 12th place and, you know, fairly safe by most people's standards in terms of where they're going uh, for the foreseeable future, will Marcelo Bielsa change his philosophy? Will Marcelo Bielsa, with the extraordinary challenges posed by the Premier League, be forced to change his philosophy when we know the answer is no. So why do we continue to ask the question when we are 100% aware of, or at least we should be, of what the answer is? Where, where is the motivation for that question? Because in the past, when the goings got tough or teams have conceded lots of goals, coaches normally do change their philosophy and become more defensively minded. Where for Bielsa, it's not about the Premier League or the Championship or the opponent. He'll do what is 
he believes in. So he'll just carry on doing what he's doing. But because of the coaches in the past that normally do change their philosophies, that's why they're saying, well, Bielsa's mad not to be doing the same. No, he just absolutely believes in his style of play. So he's going to stick with it. I did the game, uh, the Leeds-Burnley game, when I think the, the, the game before, um, Leeds had, had lost, conceded a lot of goals. And I was asked the question, again, it, it seems a logical question. Well, surely Marcelo's got to change it. And I said, absolutely not. He definitely won't. Regardless of personnel, they will play in the same way. You know that for a fact. But we asked that question because coaches normally would try and address it. There's a lack of goals or they're conceding too many. They will change their style to try and put that right. Where Bielsa believes his style of football will, again, it works. It will get them promoted. It will keep them in the Premier League and maybe push them on even further than that. So he's, he's never going to change. So it's a stupid question to ask about him. So, and my follow-up question is for, for Stephen Roy to, to talk about further: is is it is it a an exceptionalism, as Roy mentioned earlier? Is it an arrogance? Is it an ignorance? Where where is that question coming from? When well, we know what to the do, answer what, is, do what everybody else does. Do what normal coaches do. But he clearly isn't. That's not it's, the way he but operates. But they spent the entire rest of the season saying they are a breath of fresh air. So you cannot in can't my, it both ways. You can't it's the same the, that with the fact that they are asking him to change. It's the same as it was with Guardiola. It is succumb to the Premier League. That's what it is. It's it's you you must not claim to be greater than the Premier League, which has become the kind of shorthand for the ways of English football. Well, clearly, Bielsa's not looking to do that. Maybe people are, are thinking that he is, no, but he's clearly it, he's not doing that. He's doing what he does. It says far more about us than it does about him. It is basically it is a it's the rainy night in Stoke test made flesh, Bielsa, and we don't like the fact that or we for a given value of a certain sec- section of English football's kind of public resent the fact that he's passed. It's not so much that he's passed the rainy night in Stoke test. He just thinks it's stupid. It's, he, doesn't it's even, not, he doesn't even have a rainy night in Stoke test. That's not what it means. He doesn't when even they, think like that. When, <laughs> they went yeah. to Stoke, when they went to Stoke, it's a 12 PM kickoff and it was a glorious day. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. That's never happened. <laughs> Is it not the case though with Leeds in some ways, in terms of Bielsa and his philosophy of, of us collectively as the media being selective about the way that we analyse what Leeds are doing. Because I was at that Leeds-Burnley game with Chinch two days after Christmas as well. And what struck me from that, because the talk about Bielsa's philosophy had reached a peak ahead of that game because they'd beaten Newcastle 5-2 in their previous home game and then lost 6-2 at Manchester United. So there were the two perfect examples, if you like, from those watching from afar, from afar as to whether or not Bielsa in the Premier League was going to work long time. Leeds in that game against Burnley were comprehensively outplayed for the best part of an hour, certainly for the entirety of the second half. And but for the single worst piece of officiating so far this season would not have won that game. However, they dug in and defended a 1-0 lead that they had from the fifth minute. Yes, they had other chances in the first half to score, but they had pretty much zip in the second half by comparison to what Burnley... But that that wasn't a change in there. It's actually Burnley put the pressure on them and Leeds were forced to actually do what they did. They didn't say, right, we're going to defend a 1-0 lead, did they? Exactly, but that's the difference between philosophy and adaptability. They adapted to the situation that the Premier League, if you know, Burnley being an established Premier League side were providing them with and found the way to secure the points in a different way. They didn't come out slinging punches in the second half with Burnley continuously trying to take the game to them because they recognised, and I'm giving, you know, I'm trying to give Leeds some alternative credit here. They recognised that they were being outplayed by arguably an inferior opponent and adapted their, if they, they might not have adapted their game plan, but they adapted their style and their approach and their mentality in the second half to preserve what they had. And then in their next game, were able to revert to type and beat West Brom 5-0. So that we, we need to be careful that we're not, being, we're not selectively picking Leeds United matches to determine the way that they go about things when they are able to offer up alternative examples as well. Which brings us on to this word pragmatism, which is something that um, Jonathan Wilson has written about very eloquently in The Guardian recently. I, I kind of get the impression, because Rory, you wanted to touch on pragmatism as well, that, that uh, 
in your WhatsApp group, which I'm assuming is you, Jonathan, Miguel, Jack Pitbrook, maybe more, but uh, you were just having a chat about pragmatism. And basically, Jonathan Wilson got to it first when you all wanted to, wanted to go at writing that piece. So uh, now is your opportunity to not steal what Jonathan said, but actually to uh, recreate what you might have said on a, a WhatsApp group that may or may not be real. That WhatsApp group does not exist. I think me, Wilson and Miguel were on are on one WhatsApp group, but it was related to a trip to Buenos Aires in 2018. Oh, it's, it's, it's Wilson, is it? Wilson. Uh, so Wilson, it's is it? Yeah. Not relevant. Um, I've not actually read that column of Jonathan's. It, was, it annoyed me so much that he'd written it. So I, I'm refusing <laughs> to acknowledge it exists. So I'm partly right. I think basically Bielsa is a cultural touchstone who he, he represents foreignness to English football. Foreignness, which in, in one light, the light that he'd see it in is just a different type of, belief or system whatever but in some people's eyes I think represents a sense of like a condemnation of the way you do things is wrong and so his every failure is greeted by people who don't appreciate that that kind of perceived belief as proof that he is wrong and his every success is greeted as by people who admire him and and who who do appreciate his belief as proof that he is right and that's that's basically he is the ultimate kind of football cultural war figure, Bielsa, without a shadow of a doubt. There was a piece in the Sun before Leeds' game with Spurs about about the kind of the prospects of Mourinho, the ultimate kind of grinder, meeting Bielsa, this this sort of theorist, this intellectual. I think that's another massive streak of it is that Bielsa represents kind of intellectualism in football that a lot of people really resent and, and um, want to be uh, want to be proved fraudulent at the yeah. end. And they want, and in, in that kind of those traditional English, in, in Britain has a massively anti-intellectual anti culture, as we all know. But the Bielsa is, is is kind of seen as being representative of these of people who have ideas. Where obviously you don't need ideas, you need passion, and you need to work hard and to play four four two. There was this piece in the Sun about I ruefully single something out, but about how bearded football hipsters would be would be wetting themselves with anticipation and watching Colombian second division games to get excited about Bielsa facing Mourinho. Which... That's also, by the way, the, the title of the WhatsApp group that I envision yes. you, Miguel, and Jonathan Wilson and Jack Pitbrook all being in. There is the, the, the title of that WhatsApp group is Buenos Aires 2018 because <laughs> it was largely about logistics and I really can't stress that enough. Um, it, Where are you? Round the corner. Oh yeah, I see you. It Thanks. was about how we paid for the Airbnb. Um, the and that, that that preview itself contained quite a lot of theory. Quite it was was quite telling in that that, that kind of that wetting themselves this weird fixation that that anti-intellectuals have with intellectuals not being able to control, to, to control their bladders. I, I find absolutely fascinating the the idea that that watching football as a football fan is bad. The sense that being interested in the type of football that is not kind of on match of the day is. And that is a criticism of a football fan. Like, you, it, it's hard to think of that being kind of applied to like someone who really likes cinema. Like, you're you're just watching loads of fancy French films, are you? Come on! And you sort of well, yeah. You, if you like cinema, then maybe you, you might research it. French surrealism of the 1920s. French surrealism of the 1920s. This sounds like um, a piece written on a thread on Neil Custis's Twitter account. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't Custis. But it, but it wasn't Custis. It wasn't Custis. But it, it also, I think strikes at that, that kind of anti-intellectualism that pits kind of the foreign and the different, the new and the, the, the intellectual against traditional kind of martial football virtues. And I think that that's what makes him a, a kind of cultural lightning rod, that, that everyone is on, one of, is on one side or the other of that debate to whatever extent they are. And that is what makes everything that Leeds do so interesting to people, that, that if they fail, it proves one type of thing it adds validity, validity to one side of the argument and if they succeed it adds validity to the other so they are leads are basically a culture war playing out over the course of a season and the final point and it was one of the things that i listed at the beginning bielsa's teams tend to fade in the latter part of the season was the reason for um something that karen carney said uh, during the amazon prime um coverage which was then distilled down to a uh, a soundbite which lacked the nuance I think Karen Carney was attempting to instill in her comment and then the Leeds Twitter account the official club account put it onto Twitter which appeared to be an inviting uh, of criticism for Karen Carney and of course the nature of it was particularly unpleasant because she is a woman. Uh, do we think that that is particularly instructive of Leeds, of tribalism in general, of football in general, or is it something that we should treat with a kind of nuance that Karen Carney was attempting to instill in her original comments? 
what was something that was particularly interesting about that is that it came from the Leeds official account effectively retweeting or or taking the video from a fan account. And it was something that came up, people contacted us about when we were talking about football and the mainstream before Christmas. And we didn't touch upon sort of the, the way that fan media has maybe driven mainstream media. And it was really interesting to me that uh, an official account would jump upon something that a fan accounts had clearly spotted and felt as though this was something that they needed to not just give a greater voice to, but this was legitimate content for them. And it's, it seems strange to me, but we've probably seen it in other aspects of, of more mainstream media, that now what fan media is, is seeing as, as driving numbers in terms of interaction is, is a legitimate course for, for mainstream media. And that seems in, entirely wrong in so many ways. It's the reduction of everything to, to kind of banter, I think. That's what, that's what really struck me about it, that, that I, it feels to me like an official club account should be above that. Leeds have called out pundits before. Um, for Andre Radrizzani, the owner, to come out and kind of defend it, I thought was bizarre. And to double down as well, yeah. that seems strange. Like, they made a mistake. Their, their social media team made a mistake. They should have just owned up to it. It's fair enough to say we've made a mistake. But it's, the, it's this reduction to, of everything to banter, which is, I think, actually is making football particularly unpleasant to discuss online now. That, and it, it's, it's not quite the same example. You think about, like, ESPN's Twitter account. ESPN is, a, like, a massive name in sports broadcasting. It's an august destination kind of name within within the sports world its twitter account on football now is effectively just a stream of goat emojis and you kind of think well i feel like you you should be above this it's not it's your place to start debate but it's not your place to reduce everything to an argument yeah there's so many different ways you can approach football discussion i mean we're at the other end of of that spectrum to to many other football podcasts or or football discussions that take place on youtube there's room for for all of these in this sort of vast area of of the media whether that's linear or or online now that i don't understand why there's why there's a need for for the crossover and do you know what that that clip that was was put online that that leads themselves their social media team used was a a landscape image filmed in portrait. That should have discredited it immediately. <laughs> the other thing, just to offer some support to, to Karen Carney, who is an excellent pundit and has been one of the great sort of emerging football voices over the course of the last season or so, and, and that is reflected by the number of different people who are using her, is, interestingly, Chinch touched upon this earlier when he was talking about this theory that Leeds could drop off at the end of the season. And I just wanted to offer some kind of sort of st- statistical evidence as to where, although not phrased in the way that I'm sure Karen would have liked, there is statistical evidence to back up the point that she was making. In the last season, after lockdown, Leeds took 22 of 27 points available from the final nine games. The season before, in their final nine games, they took 10 points. So there, there is some statistical evidence to back up the point that lockdown helped them last season. And a lot of Leeds fans jumped upon the fact that they had won their five games going into lockdown. So therefore, the suggestion that they were getting tired at that point in the season was moot. Well, the season before, they won five of the six games that preceded their slump or relative slump in the final nine games of the campaign. So even that doesn't stack up as a statistical support that the point was not worth making. So, it, it, but I know Chinch can analyse it from the point of view of having actually watched the games rather than just crunching the numbers. It's not the, it's not the result. It's actually their performances within those games. And to say, well, they're looking tired, they're sitting deeper, they're not making the foot... They were doing all that. Yes, I agree that the results and the points they picked up changed, but actually their level of performance and intensity didn't change. I think it happened with Bielsa. Was it a Bill Bow? There was a were they were they challenging for the title, and there was a bit of a the players clear a small squad, and it, was it Marseille? And they got Marseille. it did happen. Yeah, I think that's where it comes from. But again, I think it is a valid point. If you have a bit of a break, you play an intense game. Maybe it does help you, and it did help Leeds to a degree. But again, Leeds' reaction, I think, was, was, I don't know why they're getting involved in that. It just seemed nonsense. And Karen, as you say, did do her homework. It is a point worth making. 
but you have to you have to check into this and say, well, you know, has it really happened at least? Results might be one thing. Points they picked up might be one thing, but actually has their level of performance, their work rate, the distances they're covering. And I was speaking to people at Leeds all the time when they when they weren't picking up wins. Has, has there been a noticeable drop off? And they'll say, no, we're actually stronger than we were earlier in the season. It's just that we're not getting the results, the rub of the green. It was as simple as that. Or we came up against a team that on a, on a, a certain day outplayed them or, or scored the goals to beat them. So I think you do have to be careful, not jump on the bank and say, Bielsa's great, everything's rosy and everything's perfect. No, there are problems with playing the way that he does. But I think to late, because it happened once elsewhere, and I, pundits who don't look into this do use that as a stick to beat Bielsa with, oh, it's a small squad, they're going to get tired, they're not going to maintain it. Well, they did at Leeds, there was a promotion push, then they got a promotion. They're comfortably going to stay up this season. And if he does stay at Leeds, really interesting to see where they go from here with players that they sign, how much better can they get? Could they threaten the top six? It'd be really interesting. But and people talking about Bielsa being a myth. What part of Bielsa is, again, it can be lazy. I'm just going to, because he doesn't do the things that normal coaches, in inverted commas, do, I'm going to have a go at him and say, well, yeah, he is a bit, for all the reasons that Roy's talked about, that's maybe why certain pundits say certain things. But to say someone is a myth, you've got to really back that up and say, well, what, what, what part of him is a myth? And he, it wasn't really fully explained. So I think it captures... And then people do listen when you come out with these with these words and lines about someone like Bielsa. But you've got to have the ability, like Karen was looking to do, to explain she said something and there was a reason why she said it. Don't just label Bielsa as wrong or a myth. Well, tell me why you're saying that. And to me, there's not a lot of substance to it. Well, that wasn't what was what was said. In fact, it actually was it was in the and this is the other thing that I think where this sort of fan culture is seeping into mainstream is that it was made in the point of initially Karen had said they're playing brilliantly they're great to watch they're really entertaining however there is this one tiny aspect that I think could be a cause for concern and it'll be interesting to see how that develops and it fits in with this sudden thing now that is seems to be so prevalent is that you if you're not with us all of the time if mm. it's not all positive then you're against us yeah, yeah even in the context of positive 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 one potential negative just to keep an eye on leads to a pile on and that to me that blows my mind is that that's the logic that that people but surely, surely if i were if i were to say well the way that leads play the intense style of play if they were to pick up injuries because of that style or the players might get really tired because of the short kind of gap between matches they can't then say to me we well, haven't done your homework you don't know what you're talking about because those things could happen yeah. with the way that leads play not saying it has necessarily happened in the past but there's a possibility going forward that this could happen change your sharp and nuanced analysis is as predictable as all those lazy narratives upon which you preach uh so now it is time for something completely different because never mind jack and Ori, what a soccer story this is an andy tells a tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behavior and libel where the details are moved well, I was hoping to do another reach a read through because I, I got a text from uh, a good friend of the pod, Tim Oscroft, who said he nearly crashed his car, <laughs> nearly crashed his car listening to my last read through of reach. I'm taking that as a as a good thing that he enjoyed it. It was the it was the way I again that the characters that the depth I went into, the reacher character and the and the detective, the uh, the Midwest detective. He really liked that so much he nearly crashed his car. But anyway, I've got to do a soccer story, have I? Okay. Um, so much has changed, of course, within the game, with the science and tactics and, and all these great coaches coming along. But it's good to see that certain things haven't changed. I was doing a game recently, Stoke against Forest, and I do like watching teams when they warm up, especially the substitutes when they warm up, because they're, they're doing things that, that we did as players 20-odd years ago, and they should be a lot more professional, a lot more careful in the way that they warm up. And... What I, I like about it is when, when subs or when players first come out onto the pitch, they, they very quickly go into these drills. All the cones are laid out and they play their keep ball or whatever it is that they do. But they can't help themselves, players. They still do what we did. And that's get a ball and try and hit the crossbar <laughs> from as close to the halfway line as you can possibly be. And it is something that is, I watch it all the time. It always happened when we were playing. We enjoyed doing it. Other teams used to watch other teams. They used to, there's always two or three players that want to hit the crossbar from the halfway line. Players are still they're doing it in this Stoke Forest game. I'm thinking, brilliant. That has carried on through the decades. They've still got this. What I'm hoping is going to happen as well is there's a development in this. Because at Everton, we used to have like, uh, Neville Southall was the master of this. We used to have kind of, um, you must have seen it, have like a circle. And they, they play kind of keepy-ups. But keepy-ups with your feet for a professional player isn't really too much of a challenge. So we used to play shinners 
where we used to have to keep the ball in the air, but we could only use our shins because we were that good. Neville Southall, I've never seen anyone have the control of a football left or right shin that he had, but it was caught. We called it shinners for obvious reasons. I'm hoping I've not seen it yet. And maybe this is a shout out to all the modern players. Can you as a group do what we did at Everton back in the day? And that's play keepy up, but with your shins. When that happens, I know that the world is in the right place. With Stoke and Forest, are you sure they were trying to hit the crossbar from the halfway line or were they practising a short passing drill? <laughs> no, they, they, they weren't because you always get two or three. They're kind of the, the mavericks, the renegades. I, I wasn't one of those, but if, you know, if Neville did it, I could kind of attach myself to him. And if he's boot, he tried to hit mascots and stuff and knock their heads <laughs> off and things like that. And he was, we, we got drawn, it was dark, dark days. We got drawn into that as well. But hitting, hitting the crossbar, it is, if you were just to give a, someone a ball, if there's no netting on the net, which there never was when I was a kid, the only thing you can try and do really to show how great you are is chip the ball onto the crossbar. Is that not is that not something you probably did because you weren't good enough footballers? But that that's a natural thing to try. So you still it's like kids. Here's a football. Here's a pitch. Here's a here's a goal. You're naturally gonna want to hit the crossbar, and it's still happening today. It's wonderful. I couldn't kick it to the crossbar from the halfway line, so I did it from the edge you of the area. Was, no, I couldn't reach. Hang on, you couldn't reach the couldn't goal. Reach. Of course not. Got well, not the crossbar from halfway, Chinch. Come on, be reasonable. You legs like twiglets over here. You couldn't kick the ball from the halfway line and get close to the crossbar, Steve. After about three bounces, maybe, on a particularly hard surface. <laughs> Keep your correspondence coming bitch. in to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate, review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Andy and Stephen and you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. I think that Neville Southall trying to boot the ball at mascots might be a better story, if I'm honest. <laughs> I'm sure I've told that one where he actually hit, was it, where were we, at Derby or something? And he, he smashed it and it, well, I mean, I don't know, what, what's, what's the... Is it, was it Derby? The Ram it. Yeah, but what's bears or something? It's a live sheep. Actual sheep. Do they still do that? Are they still allowed to do that? Yeah, no, not, still... not at the moment, but there is still a live Didn't Derby have animal. a... They must have a ram. They must have a, a, a ram, which is a bit... Yes, because I had that picture with the, the ram's head on. Do you remember I sent it? Do you ever see that? Oh, I'll have to get that one for you. Scott Minto interviewed me and I did a, a straight interview, but with a, the big ram's head on. And I'm sure, yeah, way, way back. I think I got sent off in that game. Neville used to try and, you were never going to hurt them because they're well padded, but he used to absolutely <laughs> smash them. He didn't like chip them and get them to land. He used to drill them so it'd knock them off their feet. The, oh, the, bloke, the, bloke dress, the bloke dresses a swan at Swansea wouldn't have quite so much swagger if they were fair game to go. Oh, his, his, his neck would be at 90 degrees before you knew it because Neville would keep, keep, forget the warm up. I don't know about my hand, then I'm going to break that swan's neck.